And welcome all to a brand new season of Head on History. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. I'm glad to have you join me for this new season. Um, we've had quite a long break and I'm excited to be back. Hopefully you are excited to be tuning in as well. I've had uh, quite a restful period, as restful as academics can get. Uh, lots of big changes uh, in my life, in my academic world. Uh, since we uh, were last together, I've graduated with my PhD, I landed a tenure track job, uh, and so there's some interesting changes ahead for me. But I'm excited to bring you this episode after our, our little break because this is going to be an interesting topic. And I've had some chance, I've had a chance to really chat with some friends and colleagues and wonderful listeners of the show. And uh, I've gotten some great feedback and input. Thank you all uh, who, who have been tuning in regularly. I'm actually going to do kind of a separate episode where I shout out all the wonderful people who have supported the podcast uh, in addition reading out some some great reviews and and shouting out my favorite podcasters as well but I'm glad for you all to join me for this new season because our theme is going to revolve around gender and sexuality and Islam. We're going to dive deep into the various intellectual concepts, theories, and cultural values of early Islam regarding gender and sexuality. So it's going to be a really fun season and hopefully it's going to be enlightening. Um, I think this is one of the more pressing um, themes and issues in Islam. We'll probably follow this up with uh, a couple seasons about Islamic politics or politics in the Muslim world, uh, maybe even uh, some other cool things ahead. But I really wanted to dedicate this episode to a theme that I think often is treated in a very reductive way in the sort of public discourse about Islam. There's a lot of misconceptions about gender and sexuality, and much of the sort of discourse and debate has been bogged down by a fixation on the hijab. There is so much more to the ideas about gender than the headscarf. I mean, we're stuck talking about burkinis and hijabs, but there's really so much more uh, to talk about and such a robust and rich tradition for us to discuss. So this season will be about talking about the Islamic concepts of femininity and masculinity, the relationship between genders, uh, ideas of same-sex love or homosexuality and homoeroticism. We'll even talk about and discuss the sort of history of cross-dressing, um, if there is a discussion or concept of being transgender in Islam, and much, much more. There's, there's going to be so much covered in these 10 episodes that'll cover, uh, you know, resources like sex manuals and discussions and debates about uh, pleasure and the female orgasm. We're going to dedicate all of these 10 episodes to discussing all the variations of gender and sexuality from this kind of historic perspective. And hopefully that will help to enlighten people, open up the debate, and show the kind of robust and intellectual thought that goes behind concepts of gender and sexuality beyond the kind of superficial discussions about the hijab. Today what I'd really like to do is set up a discussion with real brief kind of introduction to the broad understanding of gender in Islamic thought. What I'm going to do is introduce you to the framework that I'm going to use going forward and explain the kind of historic roots and, and elements 
elements of this framework. Ideas of gender are drawn, in my opinion, from three roots. Cultural practices, the Quran, by which I mean both the kind of literal text, as well as the varieties of inter interpretation, jurisprudence, and legal schools of thought, then the intellectual and scientific work of the 19th to 13th century. Now, this is the time period of kind of the high Abbasid culture, so I'm going to talk a lot about sort of philosophy and early Islamic science when it comes to uh, gender and sexuality. What I mean by cultural practices is that many of the Middle Eastern countries that we are going to talk about culturally were and remain quite patriarchal. Um, scholars like Leila Ahmed have argued that Islam itself actually emerged as a radically egalitarian rejection of tri tribal patriarchy. And this seems to be mostly true. Early Islam did argue for social reform in regards to gender relations. There was a, much of Muhammad's message was really about reforming the sort of tribal structure of uh, a late antique Arabia. It's also true, though, that while the Quran and early Islam and Muhammad's message was radically egalitarian, that where it spread, it also tended to adopt local customs. So, for example, Islam spread into the Persianate world around the 7th century, and then over the course of about three to 400 years, converted the population to Islam, therefore Islamizing the region. Simultaneously, it itself also became more Persian, adopting older Sasanian concepts and practices and beliefs. And one example of this would be the adoption of the harem. Originally, the harem likely referred to some sort of kind of basic household, the, the, the private quarters, if you will. But in the sort of ex extravagant court of the 10th century Abbasid Baghdad, the harem included wives and concubines and really became a sign of royal prestige. This is one way in which an older concept of harem is transformed by cultural practices. In contrast, we could talk about Islam in Indonesia adopting a diverse understanding of gender that includes multiple uh, sex and multiple expressions of gender as well. So this is what I mean when I say cultural practices, that it is true that we can say, generally speaking, many Middle Eastern countries are patriarchal, but that there's a great deal of cultural variety, that we can find matriarchies in places like East Africa and North Africa, that we can find multiple interpretations of gender and, and sex uh, in places like Indonesia. And so this, this cultural root helps us to understand that when we talk about gender and sexuality, while we may be talking about a broad general tradition, that there is a great deal of variety, regional variety, uh, variety from time period to time period, and so on and so forth. Now, the cultural practices, while introducing a great deal of, of variety to the concept of gender and sexuality, also have some commonality. Much of those cultural practices are interpreted through the lens of a Quranic paradigm. This is the second route by which uh, we're going to sort of set up our framework for gender 
gender and sexuality. The Quran, on the whole, is pretty egalitarian when it comes to gender. Uh, it refers to the followers of Muhammad in sort of inclusive terms as the believers or mu'minin. Uh, in fact, the term Muslim is actually not particularly common for this early community, this followers of Muhammad were all kind of known as believers. And according to Fred Donner's work, um, it's possible that, that the early community didn't even conceive of itself as a single religious identity, but rather a coalition of uh, allied religions all following Muhammad, which could have possibly included Arabian Christians, Arabian Jews, etc. So the term Mu'minim here is very inclusive in terms of sort of religious communal identity, but also in terms of gender. It refers to both believing men and women, and both believing men and women are considered the same and equal in the eyes of God and in respect to piety. They had the same connection and access to the divine. There wasn't a sort of mediator between them. Women and men accessed God in the exact same way. That said, it also does reflect social difference. So while there is a sort of spiritual, ideal egalitarianism at the heart of the Quran, there is a sort of also a reflection of social difference within late antique Arabian society. And the Quran acts as a sort of historical document codifies that difference. For example, in the Quran, men are called the caretakers of women. In other words, referencing this idea that, that men have certain social obligations towards women to provide, to build a household, to protect, and so on and so forth. So early Muslim jurists interpreted the Quran as simultaneously granting extensive amounts of rights to women, expanding and radically changing the understanding of women in society from previous centuries. Women could own property, their consent was necessary for any marriage contract, uh, women could divorce, they had the right to marital satisfaction, that's right, marital bliss for women was important, and so on and so forth. Yet at the same time, the jurists also reified certain social hierarchies. Uh, and so we'll talk a little bit about how that came to be and the, the kind of clash between Quranic idealistic egalitarianism with the social hierarchy that emerges in, in the kind of later centuries and decades after the Quran. Finally, later Muslim philosophers attempted to understand all of this and explain gender and sexuality during this high Abbasid uh, period of, of, of courtly philosophy through the understanding of science. What, they, what we see is a translation of Greek philosophers and thinkers um, f amongst Muslim writers and scholars from about the 9th to the 13th century. Now, this is a really rough period. Um, it's referred to as the Golden Age of Islam, which is a bit of a polemic term uh, and quite misleading. Um, and it, there is flexibility here. There is some time before the 9th and certainly some time after the 13th. But this is a period in which these Greek philosophers are being translated into Arabic uh, and their thought is being uh, transmitted into the Muslim world. And so there is an attempt to take this cultural variation, these Quranic and jurisprudence ideals about gender and sexuality, and try to explain them through a philosophical lens. And so a lot of gender and sexuality will have 
have these kind of questions about biology, we'll try to kind of scientifically explain difference and similarities. For example, we find Galen's ideas of the humors making their way into Islamic thought. Everyone is believed to be made up of fluids, and the fluids are phlegm, known as balgam in Arabic, blood, known as dam in Arabic, yellow bile, known as safra in Arabic, and black bile, known as sauda in Arabic. These humors are then combined with four elements, fire, air, water, and earth, and together they form the sort of uh, chemical or fluidic balance within an individual and this in turn produces sexual difference. Women, for example, were, were believed to be cold and wet, while men were believed to be hot and dry. What's interesting is that what results from this discourse within, this, within the Islamic world is that biological sex is viewed on the basis of internal humoral balance as well as climate. In other words, people became man or woman based on environmental and internal factors. The climate actually played a role in shaping temperament and biology. This allowed for a level of fluidity that uh, really gave Muslims an, uh, the ability to articulate, understand, and conceptualize the differences within sex, uh, biological sex. It helped them to understand, conceive, and explain the existence of intersex people or people whose quote-unquote traits didn't match with exact textbook definitions of what it meant to be man and woman. So what we see is the biology is far more fluid in the understanding uh, of the Islamic world than a sort of clear binary. Instead, what we see is a mix of humors, a mix of elements, internal factors, external factors, and we'll even talk about certain texts that actually reference how climates can feminize one or masculinize one. And we'll even talk about cases in which Muslim thinkers theoretically talk about how one could uh, change from one to the other because of some type of change in the humoral balance. This, in turn, interestingly, uh, applies to also gender as a concept of expression, to use the kind of Judith Butler notion of gender as, as performative and expressive. Rather than thinking of gender as either male or female, as strict binaries, they saw a gender as a spectrum of masculinity and femininity, which encompassed third sex concepts like the Mohanatham, a group of people that we are going to talk about in future episodes. I think they're very important for helping us understand the Muslim ideas of sex, sexuality, gender, uh, performance, identity, and so on and so forth, as well as uh, ideas ideas about, well, who are eunuchs? Where do eunuchs fall within this concept of masculine and feminine? This spectrum allowed a great deal of fluidity, uh, allowed a great deal of diversity, but also allowed Muslims to think of gender in really complex ways. In this way, Muslim philosophy encompassed the Quranic ideals while simultaneously making room for 
cultural variations and cultural values around uh, uh, gender. In turn, all of this informs then the notions of sexuality. Sexuality was viewed as mostly a positive thing within certain prescribed boundaries, usually marriage or formal relationships or some type of kind of social contract between people. In other words, Islam on a whole was pretty sex positive, viewing sex actually at one point, quote unquote, as a glimpse of heaven or a blessing of heaven. Indeed, Muslim heaven itself, Islamic heaven, is described in sensual terms with uh, abundant gardens and luxurious arrangements and beautiful sensual people uh, around you. And, and, and sex itself was viewed not just as, as something done for the purpose of procreation, but viewed as uh, an act of pleasure. And pleasure itself was seen as a blessing and a good thing. And we'll see all sorts of treatises that talk about sex play and even hadiths that are dedicated to things like sex play, uh, manuals that are dedicated to things like uh, teaching men how to, you know, how to... Uh, perform sex properly or or how to be good lovers so that the women would have orgasms during sex so there is a so there's this very positive view of of sexuality even the quran itself in surat al-rum which is a surah 30 verse 22 says that god created human beings with different alwan and this word is very interesting because it's often referred to or translated as colors but can also mean Taste. In other words, there was this idea that people would have different tastes and inclinations, and all of that was from God uh, Himself, and that no sex act, uh, if done within the context of, of consent and done within the context of, of a relationship or a contractual uh, boundary between two people, all sex was considered good sex. Sex acts themselves were actually imagined within this kind of framework of the spectrum with acts being either masculine or feminine, and usually mapped out in, through ideas of active and passive. And we'll talk more in detail of what I mean by that. In other words, sexuality, we'll find, is deeply associated with acts, with notions of pleasure, with a concept of obligation, with desire, but rarely is connected to identity. And that, again, is, is a very complex notion, and we'll talk further about that in the future episodes. But for now, I think this gives us a little bit of, of, of a framework for understanding that. Now, there are instances historically of attempts to pathologize or moralize the difference between masculine and feminine, between uh, active and passive. But on the whole, because of the understanding of difference being rooted in humoral balance, uh, being rooted in kind of the variation that's accepted within the Quran itself, uh, and being found within cultural variation itself, was therefore kind of viewed as a product of nature. Difference was accepted as normative. It was something that existed because God ordained it so, because it was the natural order of things. So there isn't this notion that there's sexuality was an aberration or sex acts were an aberration, but rather sex was seen as a good thing and part of the natural world that went beyond just, you know, trying to reproduce. The result was a far more flexible and tolerant and diverse 
diverse understanding of sexuality, sex, and gender than many have been led to believe. I think nowadays a lot of people connect Islam or the Middle East, or Islamic history, with sort of backwards, regressive ideas about sex, and gender relations, and sexuality. And there's a history for why that discourse emerges, and some of it is polemic, and some of it's based on a kernel of truth. And there's a really complex history of, of trying to decide where Islam is on the sort of civilizational scale of progress versus, uh, you know, being retrograde, that's tied to gender and sexual and we'll talk about how that came to be but islamic history itself was is actually far more flexible tolerant and diverse than people claim that it was i think there is an attempt to really make this history subterranean or to suppress it and 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 kind of uh, erase it so this is one of the reasons why i wanted to do this podcast now to be clear we're going to put an asterisk here that doesn't mean there weren't anxieties and tensions and instances of intolerance but what I'm trying to present is an Islamic history that is more than a history of oppression and suppression. I really want to tease out the complexity here. And that's what I want to bring to you for this season. Today was really just a brief introduction to the framework that will help us talk about gender and sexuality going forward. I wanted to dedicate this podcast just to kind of giving you a brief sketch of this framework and its historical roots and some of the sort of the philosophical and religious framework so that as we go through it, it can help act as a guide for a lot of the conversations we will have on this podcast. Now, just briefly kind of going over to help us remember, that, to help us kind of sum up, if you will, that the ideas of gender and sexuality spring from diverse cultural values and practices, Quranic ideals, and philosophical understandings, which in turn produce a notion of gender and sexuality that is on a spectrum, fluid, varying, and quite diverse. That's the kind of summation, if you will, for this much longer discussion. Uh, next week, we're actually going to dive in into uh, sex as we discuss the role of pleasure, the orgasm, the role of masculine and feminine notions in love, romance, and in sex acts themselves. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you did, please don't hesitate to leave us some feedback uh, on iTunes. You can just go directly to the podcast app, give us five stars, leave some short comments. I will read some of those out on air as a shout out, but also to connect with the, the wonderful listeners. Um, you can do the same on Stitcher Radio. Also, feel free to hit me up on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I, both on Twitter and on Instagram. You can follow me there to see a little bit of the behind the scenes of recording, as well as some of the cool Twitter threads that I've been posting up. I say cool because I'm a shameless nerd and it's cool to me. <laughs> Anyways, that's all for today. Please remember, stay smart, beautiful history nerd.